Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder on the Space Coast is brought to you by attorney Steve Casanova. Check him out at surferlaw.com. I'm Florida Today News columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. So, we're going to change things up a little bit here. As promised, the podcast you're about to hear is the entire audio from a live event we held on September 14th at Open Mics in front of a crowd of more than 80 people. You'll hear some familiar voices from throughout the season. We also entertain questions. We hear from the attorney who freed William Dillon after 28 years in prison. It was a riveting and emotional evening, and I was moved by how much people care about this case. That being said, there are just a few moments of inappropriate language, and there are occasions while we were passing around a microphone that the audio is not great. Bear with us. All in all, it's a clear and good podcast. But what we really took away from the event was how strongly listeners felt about the pattern of, well... I'm not even sure what to call it, but the pattern used by the state attorney's office in the 1980s here in Brevard County to convict innocent men like Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon. You know, the same prosecutor, the same dog handler, the same use of jailhouse informants who were compensated for their cooperation, the same swapping out of lawyers, etc. And suddenly, you've got men convicted and locked up for crimes they didn't commit. The two names, as you know, that pop up in all those cases, as well as Gary Bennett's, are that of prosecutor-turned-judge Dean Moxley and fraudulent dog handler John Preston. We said when we started this that we weren't going to record episode six until later because we still had some reporting and investigating to do. And you have let us know, even after the sixth episode aired, that you want more. So we've decided to keep digging. We need to know more. This is not the end. We need to understand just what was going on. So we're planning several more episodes to get into the nitty-gritty of that pattern and those involved. Now, we don't know how long that reporting will take. I've already started, I promise. But we will let you know with plenty of advance notice when the new episodes will be ready. So here is our live event starting with my editor, Mara Bellaby. Well, welcome tonight to our Murder on the Space Coast podcast discussion. We're super excited to have you all here, and especially because the weather is really bad out there. So thank you for coming out. Um, We really appreciate it. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about how tonight's going to go. We are going to be hearing from John Torres, who is the mastermind behind the podcast. (laughs) 
And he'll be talking to uh, some people whose voices will sound a little familiar and, and one whose won't, but um, some really key people that have been part of this. He'll be asking them questions. But the one thing I really wanted to stress is that we really want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. So we're setting aside time at the end where we want to hear your questions, your comments. You know, Maybe there's something that you wish we would have covered that we didn't. Um, so we're, that's a, a priority for us. So you know, be thinking about those, and we'll get back to that at the end. And then before I get started, I definitely want to give a, a big thank you to the podcast sponsor, who I, oh, where did he go? Steve Casanova. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate your kind of support for our investigative journalism. And I also want to give a shout out to Mike Della, and I have to say this right, Mike Della Chapa, whose place this is. It's a wonderful location, super cool. So thank you. Um, and I've written it down so I don't forget, but we have two just people that you should know that are here tonight. One is Jeff Keel, who is our president at Florida Today and a regional president for USA Today Network. And we have our executive editor, Bob Gabordi. And I have to, we'll give him a pause. <laughs> And I want to especially thank Bob because I think it was back in February maybe when at a manager's meeting we said, hey, I really want to do a podcast. You know, that serial was so cool. I think we could do it. And I think John would be perfect. And that's kind of a big ask because John's our news columnist and he writes three news columns a week. And, you know, they get good readership. It was an anchor on the Sunday page and it was kind of like, and I want to take him away from months to work on this. But Bob asked good questions, was really supportive and has been a big cheerleader for it. So thank you. And finally, I want to introduce, um, lots of introductions, but we'll get to the meat of it, um, the, the kind of master behind the production of the podcast. It's why it's sounded as good as it has, been so professional, and he's really done a great job of taking John's reporting and storytelling and really hooking you with it, and it is Rob Landers. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, I definitely want to introduce the person behind it all who's done the reporting, who's spent the hours scouring through court transcripts and police, um, police reports and looking at photographs that yeah, I'm kind of sorry we even had to look at, honestly, um, who's done interviews, who went up to the jail, to the prison to interview Gary Bennett, um, who's done so much work on this and put together an amazing story, and that is John Torres. And so now, I want to just to start this off by asking John just a couple of questions. Um, one of the things, when we first talked about doing a podcast, um, we were very open that we were super impressed with Serial, which I don't know if any of you listened to, but we wanted to look at a criminal case. And John came back with a lot of ideas, but there was one in particular, the one that you all listened to, Gary Bennett, that stood out. John, why was that one such a key? Well, she is missing something first. I said, what's a podcast <laughs> first? So I had to, you know, like, what the heck is this thing? How do we do it? But, um, you know, um, at Florida Today, where I started in the year 2001, I have covered a lot of really big stories, but two of them really stand out over the years, and that's Wilton Dedge and William Dillon's exonerations. And, you know, after Dedge, it was really amazing. But then after Dillon, it was, you know, absolutely weird that everything that happened in his case happened in Wilton Dedge's case as well the same dog handler, the same prosecutors, the same kind of you know, weird evidence that was really dubious. And a name was just popping up all the time, and it, it, it was Gary Bennett. And I wanted to know how come he wasn't free. And I, I had heard a, a, about the DNA, that he had no DNA in his case to test, and that his palm print was at the murder scene. 
So I really wanted to dig deeply. So I thought that would be a, just a great podcast just to start to really, really examine that case. And, you know, also, a like part of me really, I really felt like we had left, like we had let John Preston and also Dean Moxley and Chris White and the other prosecutors off the hook a little bit in the other two, you know, cases. So I just really wanted to look at it. And I think we picked a great first case to start with. And like anything in investigative journalism, you often start out, you start out with a question and you, you want to answer that. And in our case, it was, you know, did he do it? And um, did he, who killed Helen Nardi? But as we went and as, as John went through and did his reporting, there was all these moments where he would come into my office or he would email me and say, oh my gosh, guess what I just found out or guess what so-and-so said. So I wanted to ask him, was there an aha moment or a moment in the reporting that just stands out to you? Uh, yeah, but first, you know, right before that, she's absolutely right. I would go into her office every day and we would talk about the case. Um, and this was pre-Rob's involvement. He, he's, he's, he's involved after, after all these conversations, but we changed our mind every single day whether we thought Gary was innocent or guilty or whether it mattered, you know, in this case to us. And so, but the, the real aha moment to me was when I went to the courthouse and I found a letter from Gary as a 17 or 18 year old to the Palm Bay police asking for help, asking for psychiatric help. Um, and he said he was attracted to young children but he hadn't acted on it yet and he wanted, he wanted cure you know, of that. And so anyway, when I saw that, then I, it all clicked into place. When he was arrested, he was asked if he would take a polygraph test, and he volunteered, and he said yes, absolutely. And Phil Sellers, with the state attorney's office, you know, did it, and he passed. But then the Palm Bay police brought it to somebody else who said no, he failed. And that's the same guy who years earlier, Gary had written that letter to saying, I need psychiatric help, I, I have some issues that I need to work on. And so when, when, when I saw that, it was, it was amazing. And you know, what was great about working with Rob is that I didn't tell Rob the story, and he didn't read any of the scripts beforehand. So I'm in his office, and we are putting this all together, and I'm telling him, okay, we want this interview at eight minutes and 10 seconds until 12 minutes, whatever. And as he's hearing this, there were so many times where he threw off his headphones, and he said, what the bleep? <laughs> and so uh, it was really... That was one of them. Yeah, that yeah, that was one of those moments. When, 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 uh, when, when Bob Schwartz was announced as, as the the guy who had, had worked with Gary early on, and then it came back that Bob Schwartz is the one who said he failed. The headphones flew across the room, and I was just, I, I, we stopped, I think we stopped and did a live video on Facebook at the time, telling people to make sure they were listening to this, because it was just just unreal. So, yeah. yeah, It's been quite a process, and now that here we are, the six episodes have been released, and I know we're all kind of a little sad about that. I mean, it was sort of a with mixed feeling. There's still more to come, which we'll tell you about later. But, John, what has been your biggest takeaway? Well, I think two things. I think, you know, justice, this is, is like really going to sound corny, but I say corny things a lot of times. So I just asked my wife back there. I do. <laughs> so, you know, justice is this beautiful dream. It's this ideal that, that exists in this country, but it only becomes a reality when the people involved are just. And if they're not, then really bad things happen. And then my lawyer friends will appreciate the other takeaway don't ever speak to anybody without lawyering up. So, yeah. Good advice, I think. Yeah. All right, well, now I will turn it over to John and... Um, 
Yeah. Because my job's never done. Um, Okay, I'm, I'm going to steal this for just a second. So um, if any of you have been following us on Facebook, you know that there is a Murder on the Space Coast, Murder on the Space Coast Facebook page. As of today, there is also a Murder on the Space Coast Twitter account. And if you thought I was rude by texting while John was speaking earlier, it's because I'm tweeting out on that page right now, telling everybody that you're here listening to him. No, he's rude also. But yeah, Well, I am rude. But uh, the other thing that I wanted to, uh, to mention is that uh, I got a message from Gary's sister, Donetta, today. Uh, who I, I'm assuming she did not specifically state this, but she, she said that Gary asked uh, to pass on his gratitude for telling this story wow. and also wanted to, uh, to thank Stephen for, uh, for making sure that uh, this story got told as well. So Awesome. Thanks. And with that, I'm going to step away. And with that, we're going to hear the first two guests that we have um, who were on the podcast, Karen Bennett and Rebecca Gaston. That's a really cool last name. She's Gary's niece, and Karen is his older sister. You guys can sit up here, no mind. And I'm going to sip my beer. And if you could talk into the mic, I really appreciate you guys being here. You know, thank you so much. I know you had to drive up from from where, Karen? Port St. Lucie. From Port St. Lucie. We have some Treasure Coast people here, right? All right. So we have, like, Port St. Lucie is highly represented here in in Brevard County. Very good. The home of the Mets in spring training. (laughs) And Tim Tebow, maybe, soon. Go Mets. Exactly. But um, I want to ask each of you, you know, how is Gary doing right now? I'd say it's... um I'd say as good as can be expected in the situation he's in. Um, I think he's, I think he's pretty hopeful. I think um, you've made that possible for him. Um, hearing him, his part of the podcast, talk to you, um, anybody that believes he's innocent, he's well, and which is. Uh, a huge thing for Gary. He just wants to be believed. He just wants people to, you know, I mean, obviously he wants out of prison, but you almost get the impression that even if he had to live out all of his days in prison, if he knew that he had people that truly believed he was innocent, he would be okay with that. Oh, absolutely. Well, and and you say, how is he? He actually wrote me, uh, I'd say, two letters ago, and he wrote me and said his concerns about your intentions for this podcast and I told him I said look you know he's just he's giving both sides he's gotta he's gotta give um, you know some stuff that's gonna make all this real and 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 I'm not gonna lie I've learned a few things within the podcast about my uncle a few of them I don't believe a few of them there's still no proof I believe a lot of it's corroborated on on the Palm Bay Police Department side. Um, But I told him, I said, I I think John's got good intentions. And the next letter he wrote me, um, he said, I wrote John a letter apologizing and thanking him for what he's doing. And uh, he goes, any person that you trust, he goes, I trust. Yeah, you know, I felt 
awful when I got that letter from him because I didn't want him to apologize to me. He's in, he's the one in prison, no, you know, and it is a real possibility, of, you know, of, of an innocent man in, in prison, you know. But I, um, you know, which brings me to this, you know, question, Karen. I did want to present everything because I, you know, as a journalist, that's my job, you know, number one. But, but you know, but you, in, in order to be believed, you can't only write one side. You have to tell the entire oh, I story. That. Totally. And so what did, you know, you learn or, I mean, what was your reaction to some of the things in the podcast and your family and friends? And, and I was the same way as Rebecca. Some of it I don't believe. And I, I, as I explained to you, part of it, with the whole thing about the male prostitution, probably he had no money, and right. it was what he resorted to to feed himself. Right. You know, and, and two episodes. Yeah. That, you know, so. I mean, it, and we never said he was an angel. Right. But he's not a murderer. Right. Right. Well, exactly. And and he didn't get a fair trial. No. Well, I was going to ask you guys that. Um, yeah. And if you could just, like, speak a little bit louder, I think, for the, because uh, we are recording this. But, um. It sounds like he had the childhood from hell. I mean, uh, honestly. I mean, I spoke to his other sister, Donetta, who was crying every time she mentioned his childhood. She said that she and you, Karen, would take the blame for stuff because, because your dad was you know, pretty rough with him. We did. Our, our dad was a very abusive man. And he was a drinker, and he, he was not a nice person. Yeah. And I understand... From what I understand, that's why he bounced around in foster care. Right. Was because at one point, if hopefully I'm not overstepping boundaries, but at one point um, he was abusive to my grandmother. Um, you know, I've heard that. Yeah. Alco- mm-hmm. Alcoholic parents. He was the alcoholic. My grandmother was also abused and had to get away. So she made it to where. Those kids, you know, whoever was taken out of the home. That's why he was in foster foster care. So it saved his life from his father, you know, doing the wrong thing. From what I understand with my Aunt Donnie, um, he was hit, hit in the head by his father when he was, what, nine? Right, he was nine what, years old, yeah. He was in the head a lot. Yeah. It wasn't just when he was well, nine. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm just saying. That's one incident that Donetta remembers. Well, she, she believes it's... It's what caused his the epilepsy. Seizures. Yeah, yeah, and do all he also drank, he also drank brake fluid. She said as a little boy, and yeah, he has the epilepsy. And you know, it in all these cases, it's pretty clear that the police went after the the um, like the easy target almost. You know, you know Wilton Dedge, you know, with the long hair. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of education. You know, William Dillon, sort of like a beach bum. And here's your brother uh, who isn't working. He's sort of like a, you know, I'm not a bum, but he's you know, just kind of like hanging around the neighborhood. Uh, he, he, you know, he isn't that educated. He, he doesn't have a whole lot of prospects in front of him. And they did this. Um, well, he couldn't work because he was at the Right, he couldn't work, exactly. And so he would hang out so at that found, Magic Mart uh, place. He found odd jobs, yeah. and he, he did his traveling and stuff like that. But he never refused one thing in this case. He never, he came back voluntarily. To, right, to and, and and you know, which is the thing that Mara and I we kept going to, you know, even even after we found out some of the things about Gary. Well, he volunteered for the polygraph test. He volunteered for the rape kit test. He fought for DNA testing of of the of the semen, you know, swabs and you know, like whatever. 
on the victim. Um, if you're guilty, I'm not sure if you really fight for the DNA to be tested, you know, stuff. So um, do you guys think he's ever going to get out? I hope with your help. You've, I mean, honest to God, you've been a godsend. And um, I thank you every day. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for coming out here. And, uh, you know, go enjoy a wine or a beer or something. And um, I think we're going to call up our next guest in a second. We're going to call up a guy that has one of the coolest voices you'll ever hear on a podcast. And he's actually just, just a great guy. He's full of awesome stories. Um, you may know him as the former mayor of Melbourne Beach. I know him as a kick-ass investigator and FDLE profiler, Tom Davis. I can say ass, right? I'm offended, John. Yes, sir. When our uh, executive editor, Bob Gabordi here, you know, first saw one of the videos we had with, with Tom, because um, in Sunday's paper this weekend and Monday, online and in print, we're going to have a huge, huge you know, take on this. Uh, we have columns, we have stories, we have some photos, we have some really cool videos. But when, when he first heard Tom Davis's voice, he said, we need to use that guy in every podcast we ever do. <laughs> and so uh, hopefully we will. <laughs> Hopefully that that you know will also keep me working too. So, <laughs> so Tom, can you talk a little bit, uh, just real briefly, about your experience as an FDLE profiler? Can I open with something prior to that? John? Sure. Yeah. When I hear about the abuse that Gary had at the hands of his father, I had a stepfather who beat me profusely, broke my nose, went to jail over, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand that part, and uh, it's tough. It's horrible. But yeah. Life moves on. And uh, uh, I've got a compliment, John. And, <laughs> and without, well, the cases are disposed of, and I'm a has-been in law enforcement now, but John's always kept the faith. John helped keep in prison one of the most cold-blooded individuals in my 40 years in law enforcement ever I ever met and it was Clarence Albert Jack he was a murderer a smuggler and a severe child molester and, and had John not uh, done what he did and brought that case to me uh, he would have gotten out of prison that year and yeah. this girl was terrified. Yeah. So I'm way off course. I apologize. Yeah, no, no, I don't, for that, which is fine. No. You know, just like real briefly, no. you know, Zachy, you know, killed Michael Hunt's brother, the like prosecutor. Uh, he was also Dean Moxley's, you know, star witness in the Wilton Dedge case, believe it or not. Exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. where I was. And, and, and so and so Zachy was due to to like be out of out of out of prison. And I receive a phone call one day from this woman who says he can't ever come out of prison. He used to rape me and my little sister every every day. I said, "Holy smokes!" I said, "Well, you know, I can't, I, I can't print that, but I will tell you what I will do. I will, I will set you up with Julia Lynch, who does the sex crimes at the state attorney's office, if I get the story first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and even if she said no, I was going to send her there. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, a few journalists have souls, but 
<laughs> but and and anyway, she wore a wire into prison, and he admitted everything to her, and so he's in prison for life. So, good. Yeah. Good riddance to that guy. But anyway, yeah, with this Sorry. case, Tom. Uh, now, you were only one of like three or four profilers in the state for a while. Is that right? Correct. Uh, there's a lot of talking heads, but actual certified, bona fide, what we consider in the world actually is. Uh, about less than 300 of us worldwide. That includes uh, United States, Canada, who's very aggressive. Uh, Australia now has three uh, under studies that's finished. It's a three-year fellowship program. It's quite an honor on your dollar that I got to learn that, and uh, I love it. It was yeah. it was a blessing, and uh, so there's not a lot of us around with the real credentials. Well, and he has the real credentials, and he's worked some really major cases all over the state. And so when we did this podcast, you know, I wanted the people obviously involved in the story, and and I wanted Gary's family, I wanted the cops, but I wanted an outside, an, you know, an outside voice, a like set of eyes that I could trust, that you know, like that he would come in. So I gave Tom all the documents that I had, whatever photographs I had, and you know. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that your opinion kind of changed as you went through the stuff, right? I think at first you thought Gary was pretty much guilty. Correct. And then what happened? Kind of two-prong approach, if I might, John. One from the behavioral side, and then one from the investigative side. Uh, Forty years in law enforcement, started out as a city police officer, worked my way up, earned my bachelor's degree, had a lot of experience, and retired from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. That's a real brief uh, synopsis of how quick 40 years flies by. (laughs) Uh, But if I might open with the behavioral aspects, and wait till you hear the punchline, family, before you kill me, okay? Behaviorally, when we look at, and John, by the way, did say, objective, that's all I want. Don't try to paint this anyway. Uh, Don't slant it, et cetera, et cetera. So we went at it fair. I looked at it. uh, If you look at uh, Pee Wee's background, he's a perfect candidate to fall into being an offender, quite frankly. If I would have drawn up a profile, many of the characteristics that I would have handed would have fit him if you had a suspect. Uneducated, sort of out of work. Uneducated, uh, questionable mental health background, uh, disenfranchised socially, uh, those type characteristics that we would see. Those, we always caution the police, do not use this to convict somebody. And in fact, the courts won't allow it. Of all things, they call that junk science and allow a dog to the, right, yeah. the pees in on evidence to yeah. be evidence. But at any rate, yeah. uh, so looking at that side, John, behaviorally, uh, the night of the alleged incident, uh, as I understand from the reports and statements that, that you shared with me, uh, there was some alcohol use. We all know that alcohol use does what? First, it inhi- uh, your social mores and that are inhibited somewhat. So uh, looking at it from that standpoint, uh, I, I could not say to John, absolutely not. What I can say, so click off the behavioral side, and it's a lot more in-depth than that, but 
those are the highlights. Yeah. But if we jump to my prong two, 40 years as an investigator, et cetera, et cetera, uh, my personal knowledge of the Preston dog situation was a travesty. I fought it from day one. While I've known Dean Moxley my whole career, uh, he was vehemently opposed if any of us spoke up that how ridiculous the claims of that dog was. And I, I think I shared this with John. Put the brakes on when you need to, John. Sure, but, yeah. uh, I shared this with John. The epitome of it to me was on Merritt Island, there was an unsolved homicide body recovered in, in a canal. The roadway had been paved. It was dirt at the time of the homicide. The roadway had been paved and Preston alleged that dog could still scent under pavement. Wow. It's a wonder uh, dog. John, uh, yeah. 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 John used ass, I'll use bullshit. You know, <laughs> uh, excuse me, I don't mean to offend you. But unadulterated, but, but Mr. Moxley defended that dog to the hill. To the hill. Well, and that's... And that's unfortunate. Well, oh, I'm sorry. You're recording. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I warn people that this is about a murder, <laughs> yeah. and if you're you know, like sensitive and whatever, don't listen. But um, you mentioned to me real briefly, I think we have like about one or two minutes left here, Tom. Yes, um, you mentioned that when you heard Gary say something on one of the tapes, uh, on you know, one of the, uh, of, of the podcasts, that it sparked something that you're kind of trained yes. to listen to. Correct. You said he said, when I asked him, if he killed Helen Nardi, he said, no, I did not. Correct. What does that mean to you? Uh, one of the areas of expertise that I was trained in uh, through uh, was called scientific content analysis. I can look at statements and analyze those statements as to their content and what they really mean. Uh, through that training, uh, the advanced training, I had three levels of it with Avanon Sapir, the, the best of the best, former Israeli army, Israeli police. Uh, through that, one of the things that when we hear a denial or read a denial is there's really one way to deny something. The real purest way is to say, I did not do it in the story. If you add a bunch of peripheral nonsense, he didn't. And as John pointed out, and I shared with John, holy cripe, John, that concerns me. I mean... Again, like profiles of, of people, it does not constitute a walk, if right. you will, but it certainly is another check in the It sort of opened your eyes, yeah. And, and, and in, in, in my biggest thing, John, from, from just being like you, wanting the right thing done, and uh, a couple of things that, uh, that I'll, I'll kind of end with, and then you can hit sure. me again if you don't mind. One is uh, the judicial system has become competitive. All you JDs don't kill me, but on the prosecution side and the defense side, it really does become competitive. It's and more I about winning. It's, it becomes about winning and stats, particularly if you're a government agency. And that's reality. And that's scary as, as can be because that's not true justice. And I share with John, one of the nightmares I would have is if I ever, ever thought that I put somebody in a state penitentiary. And if you haven't visited one, 
you can't imagine the hell that it is. I, I couldn't sleep if I did. That being said, given, and I'm going to be real committed here, the railroading that's going on in this case from a lay person's opinion, and I am not an attorney, not qualified to say this, but this man should have a new trial, in yep. my opinion, yep. unequivocal. Yep. I, I really appreciate you being out here, Tom, and, and you know, for all of your insight in the podcast. Um, and for coming out tonight, and as you know, as my executive editor ordered me, you're going to be on on all of them from now on. So, so be ready. <laughs> uh, Tom Davis. And so, uh, our next guest was not a voice on the podcast, but he's a guy that I turn to a lot for for legal uh, advice in cases like this because he is the guy that freed William Dillon. And I'd like to introduce, even though he's a Yankees fan, ugh, Mike Parolo. He's a great guy and a really good friend of mine. I am a Yankee fan, and we're still in the running for the playoffs, so I'm happy. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, you know, Mike had me nervous all day because I, oh, you know what? I also want to recognize real fast, uh, Erica Rogers-Feinswag is here. She was part of our, of our panel of attorneys. Hi, Erica. Thank you for showing up. And, um, you know, one of the things I did, Mike, and uh, I mean, obviously Mike knows because he was part of it too, and Steve Casanova, was we decided to have a, about 10 lawyers show up two or three times. I think we had three, you know, sessions um, where we asked them to keep listening to the podcast and to let us know if we're doing anything that, you know, isn't accurate or isn't right, and just, you know, and for their feedback, and it was really invaluable. So we uh, you know, I really appreciate Erica and Steve and Mike and all the other folks. If there's anybody here that uh, who was part of the panel that I, I am not saying I, I apologize, but we had some great people. Now, um, you know, Mike, for the people here who don't know a about William Dillon, could you tell us his story in like a about 90 seconds or so? 90 seconds? Wow. Thanks, John. All right, you know, 120. <laughs> uh, William Dillon was a um, surfer. Um, he lived in Satellite Beach. His family was in Satellite Beach. Um, there was a homicide that happened on Canova Beach. Uh, Mr. Dvorak was the victim in the case. And fast forward, pretty much they were told that there was an individual that night that was outside, got pretty much was hitchhiking, and had a yellow T-shirt in his hand walking down the street of A1A, not, not wearing a shirt, but has this T-shirt in his hands, gets picked up. Um, this description also given on this person, um, you know, just cutting to the chase, they, they wind up going to a, a bar, they find out that uh, William Bill is a um, frequent uh, you know, flyer of the bar. And this is a bar that was frequented by a lot of surfers at the time. Bill's a surfer. So anyway, they, they finally get up to Bill. They find him at the beach one day with his brother. And they ask him, hey, you know, we want to ask you some questions about a homicide. And would you have any problems coming down and talking to us? And Bill, being you know, a 19-year-old, very just sure, why not? I got nothing to hide. Goes down and talks to them. Um, 
talks to them a couple of times. One of the times that he talked to them, they had him kind of write out a statement, and then they just crumble it up. They asked him actually to crumble up the piece of paper and kind of toss it away. And John Preston walked in with his dog, um, harassed too, and harassed is very fitting of a name, <laughs> went by, sniffed at the paper, and then pretty much looked, um, you know, they walk out, and then the agent on the case, Slaughter, at, turned to Bill and pretty much says, how does it feel to be tracked by harassed too? And, and Bill had no idea what that meant. Um, you know, Bill was in, in the military for, for a while. He was uh, actually on leave, and that, that's why he was back in Satellite Beach. So anyway, a couple of days later, they come to his house, and, and they arrest him. Um, they, and they tell Bill, you know, they've arrested him for first-degree murder. Um, pretty much the evidence that they had at trial was the, the dog, the dog sniff. Um, they had his girlfriend at the time, or ex-girlfriend, you know, by the time the trial came around, who said that Bill Gate, you know, made some kind of confession to her. I'm going to stop him for one yeah. second because the girlfriend was sleeping with the lead investigator uh, in the case. I, I was going to get there. Yeah, sorry, I, I just couldn't resist. It's uh, yeah. Not only was she, you know, involved with drugs, but she was also sleeping with Charles Slaughter, who is the, the lead agent of the case. Um, she was also threatened a couple of times. You know, we could make you an accessory. You could looking at 25 years in prison. Um, and she's young as well. I mean, you know, she she's uh, frightened as well. So. Um, the case also involved a uh, quote-unquote jailhouse snitch, uh, Roger Dale Chapman. Mr. Chapman said that Bill pretty much confessed to him while they were at the county jail. And Roger Dale Chapman had a capital sexual battery pending at the time and it magically disappeared when so he he's a rapist. By a trial. Yes. An alleged yeah. rapist. A yeah. uh, yeah. capital sexual battery means that he, he was over the age of 18 and was at least accused of having sex with someone under the age of, of 12. So, um, so that's who the state was making deals with. Right. The, the nice. case got, Roger's case got dropped after he testified and there was a, con a conviction for Bill. And, and just so I don't forget with Roger's case, what, what really got to me, and, and I, I find this out obviously as we're investigating Bill's case, is years later, uh, Roger's got another charge in a different county and he's pleading to it, but they call down one of the prosecutors from here. And the prosecutor testifies on Roger's behalf and says, you know, the guy's testified for us before. He testified in this one case and, it, you know, his Bill's case and pretty much asking for leniency from the judge in another county. And the guy wound up getting a, a more lenient um, sentence based on that. So um, also in the case, you had the ID. And the ID, this is going back to what I said before, the guy walking down A1A with a T-shirt in his hand. The T-shirt was supposed to be a yellow T-shirt, uh, and it said surf it on it. But that the guy's description, the guy who's holding the T-shirt, who's supposedly you know, the killer, and, and in my opinion is the killler, was given a description of 5'8", five, you know, five maybe 5'9", five you know, 140 pounds, something like, oh, actually a little bit more than that. And, and then more to it was that the guy that picked him up was a homosexual or at least bisexual. He was at least bisexual. They engage in oral sex as, I guess, payment for the uh, trip. And there's a, a mole discovered on this guy's penis. 
Uh, Bill Dillon, no mole on We can't make this stuff penis. up, folks. No, no. Uh, Bill Dillon, no mole on his penis. Um, I did not verify it, but it was verified by other people. <laughs> um, Bill was never, at least at that point, 5'8 or 5'9. Bill is well over six feet tall. Uh, I believe Bill probably at the time was about you know, like 6'3, uh, maybe even 6'4. Pretty big guy. Wasn't big, you know, muscular guy, but um, you know, you could not confuse him being 5'8. There's not a chance in the world to confuse him as being 5'8. So that pretty much was all the evidence they used to convict Bill. Um, th there was also, uh, you know, at the time, obviously the death penalty could have been an issue. And what we discovered later on was that if his attorney at the time, um, his attorney was not a public defender, but was a court appointed attorney, um, did not bring up the issues between Slaughter and the girlfriend that the, they were sleeping, um, they would agree not to seek death on the case. So pretty much the, the, the big piece of evidence that probably would have shown the jury that the girlfriend was extremely not credible was not able to be brought up in front of the jury because it was used in a way to make a deal. We won't seek death if we got a conviction because, you know, in Florida, you first got to convict on first-degree murder, and then step two is, you know, uh, would be whatever the sentence would be, life or death. We won't push for death if you kind of keep that, you know, under the covers, so and, to speak. And that, Mike, so. sounds a lot like what happened in Gary's trial yes. where his lawyer was not allowed to bring up that, or he didn't bring up, the fact that the victim, Helen Nardi, was having sex with her, her son-in-law, who was 10 years older than she was. Right. And, you know, um, obvious, you know, you know, the type of, like, suspect, right, you know, behavior. Right. What, what, what is very scary is if you look at all these cases that you know, John has talked about, obviously you know, Gary's case, but if you talk about uh, Wilton Dedge's case, Juan Ramos's case, they're all very similar in terms of how the case got put together, what was presented to a jury, and what the jury relied on for conviction. It's very scary in my opinion because it was so easy. Really, when you look at it, it wasn't that difficult. They had, you know, uh, you know, lawyers not you know trying not to be as zealous as they should have been, uh, agreeing not to go you know after a witness for a certain issue in you know in exchange for whatever it was. Um, you have a jailhouse snitch, you know these quote unquote snitches, and and you know John talked to you about how you know nice of a gentleman Mr. Zaki was, and, um, and and you've got this dog handler and his dog, and. Uh, and you put that together and you know maybe now it would be difficult for a jury to look at that and say nah you know maybe that's not enough and maybe it would be you know i don't know um but you know you, you go back in the early 80s um i mean that's a perfect storm for a wrongful conviction and and you've got people that you know just felt like hey i didn't do anything i've got nothing to hide so sure i'll come talk to the cops Sure, I'll crumble this up. Sure, you could smell my whatever, you know, my clothes, my paper that I just crumbled up, whatever it is. I didn't do anything. So the dog's not going to, you know, the dog's not going to you know, track anything. There's nothing to track on right. me. Um, I guess you'd call it, you know, being naive or just, you know, sometimes being a fool to the justice system, thinking that it's actually going to work in your favor. 
Well, well unfortunately, you, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, you, you know, Mike, and that, which is you know one of the things all all the guys that were all convicted that we've all been talking about, including Gary, said that they believed in the system. Now, you mentioned four cases. There are two names that are the same in all four cases. That's Dean Moxley and John Preston. And we had that panel of attorneys, and every time we bring up Dean Moxley or John Preston working together like that, they kind of all shrug their shoulders like, yeah, we know. We know what was going on. What, what was the 80s like? I mean, I mean, well, I mean obviously, well, you're, I, I, I mean, you're, you're only like a year or two older than me, but, you know... Um, the 80s what were about Transformers and G.I. Yeah. Joes. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, no, it, it's what, what, we, what we discovered, at least in our investigation, was um, that Dean Moxley at the time was pretty much leading up all the homicides at the state attorney's office. So if it was a homicide, the case came to him, and he's pretty much the, the felony uh, supervisor. And what we discovered, at least in our case, working on Bill Dillon's case, was that John Preston was brought into these cases by Moxley. Um, and, and I give, you know, Moxley is a judge for a long time. Um, he's a senior judge, which means he's retired, but he comes back and, and works on cases. He conducts trials. And I actually have a case with him currently. It's a, it's a juvenile life without parole resentencing case that we're having some issues with, but um, that's... Different. He's not trying to use the dog, is he? No, okay. no, different day, different All topic. Right. Um, what, what is concerning is that you know, Judge Moxley is a very smart man, and to be in the position that he was you know, 30 years ago, um, I don't think a guy that smart gets fooled by a guy like John Preston. Um, and, and that, and I can be completely wrong. And you know, and, and Moxley could say, you know what, he 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 duped me too. Um, I, I have all. The only thing I know is that he was brought in. Preston was brought in by him. And there, we talked to some attorneys while we were investigating Bill's case that worked at the state attorney's office at the time. And there were a couple of cases in particular. And we also talked to a couple of the sheriff's department um, agents and. Um, you know, deputies at the time. And they all told us the same thing. And it was funny because, you know, we didn't talk together. Obviously, we was talking to them separately, not telling them who we talked to. Uh, pretty much it said that if you're a prosecutor, and depending on the strength of the case or the weakness of the case, and I'm more so towards the weakness of the case, some prosecutors were directed, use, use Preston. And one prosecutor specifically said, no, I don't like the guy. I think what he does is BS. And this is back, you know, early 80s. This is not, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later. Back right then in the time, he says, no, I, I don't trust that. I'm doing my case without him. Well, no, you don't understand. You, you're putting him on your case. And the prosecutor pretty much said, screw off, and I'm not prosecuting the case. Um, we had a agent with the sheriff's department, same exact thing. Um, they were working on a rape case. Um, the pretty much they brought in Preston because they were told to bring in Preston and a particular agents talking to the to Preston and Preston says well I need everything that you've got on this case I need all the files you got I need all the witness statements you have and the agent was like wait a minute we've brought in people before to kind of help out they've never asked for what we have 
they've kind of asked for the general information, and it's your job to figure out, you know, you know, fill in the pieces. And he reluctantly gave him the information. Um, the dog, you know, Preston uses the dog. They track out this guy. This agent was totally convinced that this guy was innocent. Talked his boss into it, pretty much proving the case against or for the guy he just arrested, showing that the guy was innocent, and they, they released the guy. Um, and he said there was not a chance I was going to let that guy actually go forward and you know be prosecuted. So there were officers at the time that did not believe what Preston said he could do. A lot did. Um, and I don't know if a lot of them actually believed him or they just said, hey, sounds good to me. This is a so-so case. We need something that gets us over the hurdle. And kind of like what Mr. Davis had talked about earlier um, about you know being competitive, um, you know, trying to win. Um, I think that's what they were doing back then was just trying to win. And uh, it's funny because there's a uh, old U.S. Supreme Court case where one of the justices said, you know, talking about a prosecutor and prosecutorial misconduct, that it's not your job should not be to win; it should be to seek justice. And I and I can tell you that the prosecutors and all these cases we're talking about, we're not seeking justice. Well, and that leads me to my final question for you, Mike, is, and this is going to put you on the spot, and if you can't answer it, I understand, because you have to deal with, with the, uh, he's, a, he's the like, chief you know, like, public defender um, in, in court right now. So um, we're surprised, as a newspaper, uh, at Phil Archer's response. We've asked him to uh, actually comment on the case or to be part of the podcast if he would ever consider opening the case when you look at it there's um you know half a palm print the dog handler and a jailhouse snitch and what is the reluctance what is i mean why isn't it about justice i mean what if this poor guy is really innocent and has been in prison all these years i wish i could answer the question because john if you remember when we got the results back from the lab showing that you know bill was exonerated the, the dna on the shirt was not his and we actually gave them the suspect that we thought it was. And about a year and a half later, they confirmed it was the guy that me and my investigator thought actually did the homicide. Um, they, the state attorney at the time, Norm Wolfinger, and you know, rest in peace, um, refused to talk to us. And all I wanted to do is just to sit down and say, let, let me show you what we've got. And let's just end this now. Bring Bill out and, and let's end this now. It's just mind-boggling because Wolfinger was a public defender who fought against the dog handlers. He was. He, he was on um, a couple of these cases that we've that have been discussed early on, and he was very adamant uh, against Preston and his dog. He called you know the, the evidence unreliable. I wouldn't put my life in the you know the the hands of a of a dog or you know in his handler. And then it's like they flip sides. And it's all of a sudden, it's like, forget what I thought about last year when I was defending these cases. And I, and I don't know an answer to your question, because it was, I was just, I, I was it's shocked. Baffling, that no, right? no one, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was baffled that no one would even sit down and say, listen, ju just give me five minutes. I'm going to show you the reports. I've disclosed them to you anyway, but let me explain them to you. But no, I mean, you know, Bill probably could have been out. And you know, I had the case for about two years. He probably could have been out after the first year I had the case. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it was, no, uh, we're not going to agree. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. Uh, and they knew all this stuff. I mean, everything was you know, presented to them. Um, I had, you know, as part of litigation, there's a discovery process. You've got to give the other side 
everything you got. You can't surprise them with anything. And I, we were disclosing all these things. We were disclosing the things about you know, the girlfriend and the agent. Um, we were disclosing the things about the jailhouse snitch, obviously the DNA testing. Um, we disclosed all these people that we talked to that said they were told to bring in Preston even when they didn't want him and they didn't trust him. We gave them all this stuff. Um, and it just, it wasn't, um, it, it was falling on deaf ears. And I, I don't know if it was a concern and maybe that continues to be a concern that if we admit that wrong, you know, whether we admit Bill, Bill's conviction was wrong or Gary's conviction is wrong, then that opens up the floodgates to, you know, 500 guys from prison saying, well, open up my case. I don't know. Well, if they're innocent, we should, right? And Exactly. I mean, if you got to open up 500 cases, open them up. If it leads you to opening up one other case and open it up. In my opinion, it's always been a win-win. If I'm a prosecutor, um, you know, there's been a lot of times when I've looked at it and said that they can do more good than a defense lawyer can do because they get the case, they review it, and they can look at it and say, listen, this, this isn't the guy. Or I don't trust myself putting this evidence against this guy because, okay, if he did it and we prove it, you know, great. But if he didn't do it, then what? Um, and, and it's a, and I get it. It's a very fine line. I mean, what do you do? I mean, it, you know, sometimes I've, I've heard some lawyers ask, you know, potential jurors in a trial, um, would you rather have you know, 99 guilty people free and one guy, one innocent person incarcerated. And it's interesting sometimes what the responses you get. Sometimes you get jurors to say, absolutely not. You know, one innocent person away is one too many. And that's my philosophy on things. I mean, sometimes you get the other people to say, well, you know, that one guy, you know, maybe one day they'll figure out it wasn't him. Well, it took 27 years for Bill Dillon to be figured out that it wasn't him. Uh, Juan Ramos, another case, the guy was on death row. Yeah. And it, they finally figured out it wasn't him. And Wilton, Wilton Dedge was in a president for like 22 years. I think closer to, yeah, like 22, 23 years. years, and they figured out it wasn't him. And at what point do, and I am convinced that we have had people serve their life sentences in DOC, and they have died in prison innocent and i am convinced we have executed innocent people in this country no one ever found out they were innocent uh, so but, but look uh, i really appreciate you being here mike a big hand for mike perolo please everybody what he does every day in court is really amazing so thanks for being thanks out here mike. thank thanks, you buddy and uh it's too bad that john preston has passed away because otherwise the yankees could use his dog to help them find the playoffs but sorry about that one so <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. It's all right. I hate the Yankees almost as much as I hate the Braves. But um, we're going to bring back Mara Bellaby and our producer, Rob Landers, and we're going to open up the floor for questions. Luann Manderville uh, in green there has a wireless microphone. So if you have a question, she will go around and she will hand it to you. So with that, uh, we have food back there. Don't forget, I'm going to have a sip of my beer. <laughs> If you have a question, raise your hand. There we go. Right there. What can we do to help? I feel so helpless after listening to this. I would say um, 
share the story, share the podcast, have people listen to it, write the governor. Our lawyer friends, right, Steve Casanova, you said that maybe clemency is, you know, one of the only things, you know, write to the governor. But, you know, somebody else here um, also, oh, yeah, also write to Phil Archer. But um, I think also write a letter to Gary and just tell him you believe in him if, if you do. So, John, when you went into this, you probably were looking for some outcome. You knew the case fairly well. But if what you had discovered led the other way, if everything pointed to his guilt, would you have still had a podcast or would it not have been one? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, we spoke about that. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure what the research was would, would actually show us. And we purposely only recorded three of the episodes before I was done researching, or maybe even, you know, four. I mean, I was, like, still researching until episode six. I mean, I just kind of met Donetta about a week and a half ago online and interviewed her over the phone. So I was finding more information, and we decided whatever it yielded, you know, I mean, our job was to be objective and to look at it objectively and to have, you know, like people like Tom Davis uh, and Mike Prolo that I could ask questions to and, and, and others who were objective um, you know, actually talk to us about it. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, look, I don't know if he's innocent or not, but I do know that he didn't get a fair trial. So. And, that, and that's the point I think we kept coming back to, but we did, we went back and forth so much, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we didn't answer who killed Helen, but we definitely answered that Gary didn't get a fair shot. Yeah, Joe? Yeah, hi. My name is Joe. I'm Becca's husband. And I just wanted to make a point. I didn't want to necessarily ask a question. But years ago when Grandma came to the house and we were sitting out on the porch and they were explaining to me pretty much for the first time about this Pee Wee character, I'm like, you know, look, 12 intelligent people sat on a jury and listened to this and, and put him away. He's guilty. They're going like, well, we're going to go up and see him. We want you to come with us. And I'm, no, I'm serious. I, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be involved with, you know, feeling sorry for a guy that, you know, I, okay, I granted, he's your uncle. You can love him forever. But seriously, it sounds like, you know, he's where he needs to be. Then I looked into it. And, and little bit by little bit by little bit, I understood that, wow, they must have chose the 12 perfect people to listen to that, excuse me, bull crap, okay, and put this guy away. So I decided to go and, and have gone at least once, sometimes twice a year to go see him, and that is the saddest thing you could ever see. This guy, he's, he's they call him Pee-wee? Yeah, I'm a big guy, okay, but, but he's like this big, seriously. And, and it's just incredible, brings tears to my eyes every time I have to leave. Looking every time I go there with his teeth knocked out, his shoes with, with holes on the bottom of them. And he sits there, you know, kind of happy and joking and telling his kind of stupid jokes, you know, and, you know, you, you act like you laugh at him and stuff. But seriously, it is it is extremely sad situation. And then reading all the stuff I read and looking into some of the people they didn't look into, it is incredible. 33 years in prison. Got to bring tears to your eyes. Seriously. I just want to make another comment, and maybe I'm biased because of the whole situation, and he's my uncle. Well, you better be biased. Yeah, he's your uncle. But I find it very convenient 
for the times all these participants um, decide to retire. You know, Norm, he's very, very involved in this. You know, um, I think you got the words from my aunt uh, about where, if, if and where he is and, you yeah. know. Um, but uh, Moxley, I pray for his sake we do not find out some truth to this and um, because I, I, I would love charges to come across this man. If, if I could just say one of the, when you mentioned the jury, one of the things that really stood out to me was, I mean, here was a jury that was presented an expert, you know, and the way that they, in the court transcript, I mean, this, they were told that finding the scent, Gary Bennett's scent on the murder weapon was just as good as finding a fingerprint. And I mean, just- On the murder weapon. On the murder weapon. And so picture yourself in a jury being presented. Here's an expert, you know, he, it's like his fingerprints on it. And to me, that's one of the, that was kind of just one of the points that in my head, I just keep going over and over. And, you know, what, and the trial went so fast, you know? Right. So it wasn't, I mean, the jury, it was, it was, fast and and they were basically lied to yeah i mean our, our our like lawyer friends back there this is a capital murder case and it was jury was like chosen in two hours the trial was a day and a half and he was in prison like the following you know like a few days later so from from jury selection to sentencing was 36 hours I yeah think, i think is what 36 in a capital murder case a yeah cap, capital murder case yeah 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 marshall uh very very good presentation thanks um you know, I was in the business myself for 30 years. I did 16 years in homicide in Miami. And so I know a little something about how this process works. He was actually solving them and not killing people. Just, yeah, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do know of a lot of cases, not so much in Dade County, because in Dade County I, I had the good fortune of being with prosecutors, one of which was Janet Reno, uh, who made sure that all evidence was properly vetted before it was accepted for prosecution in the court. Uh, just about every jailhouse snitch was uh, polygraphed. And not that the polygraph is the end all, the end all, because you know, it can be flawed, but the people who take polygraphs don't know that. And so, it, so there is value to polygraph when, you, when you, you get a witness like this one in Bill Dillon's case, uh, who probably would have failed the polygraph, and that would have been the end of that. Uh, but the question for me is, and the thing that bothers me the most is uh, how prosecutors are not held accountable for the uh, grotesque mistakes that they make or the ne negligent mistakes that they make, which ends up with someone losing 20 or 30 years of their life, which is like death. And, and they just say, sorry, you know, shrug the shoulders and nothing can be done about it because they're legally protected from any kind of uh, retribution or uh, punishment. In Bill Dillon's case, I don't think he even got a sorry, by the way. I no, think he, he was like still waiting for And they his fought sorry. it all the way. They fought yeah. it all the way. They didn't want to uh, do the DNA, and then they didn't want to give him the money, you know, for 27 years in prison and so forth. Uh, and, uh, but a lot of these uh, prosecutors could and should be held accountable because they were either very negligent or incompetent in the way they handled the case. Now, as I understand it, you can't be sued as a prosecutor. Is that right, my lawyer friends? They're in the other room. What are they doing? Were they solving a case? 
Erica. What are you guys doing back there? Whoa, whoa. <laughs> are prosecutors able to be sued or no? No. Immunity. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? Could we hand Steve the microphone? Oh. Hey, Steve, could you just walk over here real fast? Just to, if you just. I work for no, for a normal finger, and I'm also a defense attorney now, and I've done many jury trials, and I can tell you that maybe you might want a different, you know, let's get different normal finger. Let's give me another one. The reason being is because we're dealing with people. I have to catch my breath. And in, when we have a system with people in it, it's not going to be perfect. And you also have people <coughs> that come from different backgrounds. <coughs> Pardon me. Some are, let's say an example would be, some are pro-life and some are pro-choice. Therefore, you're never going to get those two people to agree, right? Think about it. Pro-choice versus pro-life, right? That's what you have here. When you have the prosecutors, maybe they can be pro-life, they're never going to listen to the evidence that says you should be pro-choice. You see what I'm saying? So everybody can say whatever they want to say about, oh, they ignored this, or it was that scientific evidence that was bogus. The thing is, is that they don't think that way. It's a thinking pattern that they have. And a lot of times the problem we have in the system <coughs> is the lack of people who have drank from the cup of life. And what I mean by that is that they have to have experience. Some of these prosecutors, judges, and people in, in the system haven't had a life where they've maybe drank from muddy hoof print, where they've had a struggle. Some of these people went right from high school to college to law school to become a judge. Their life experience is different than that of Gary Bennett or John Torres or maybe Steve Casanova. So as a result of that, you have a system that will not change because it's people. And when you understand the perceptive of that, then you kind of have to forgive a Norm Wolfinger or a Dean Moxley. Because you know what? They don't know any better. And to, and to be truly Christian and forgiving, that's what maybe life's about. For sure, he did not get a fair deal. But the justice system in the United States of America, I would say, is the best in the world. <clears throat> it might not be perfect, because we have people. But it's probably the best we have, right? There are ways to correct it. And that's why we have people like John Torres doing it. And we need that. We need the criticism. We need the media. We need the Mike Perillos. We need those people to do that. But the fact is, is that we're going to always have this. It's never going to change. When I do jury trials, I always ask people about what do they think and how do they criticize <coughs> the words of the prosecutor. A lot of times it's very hard for them to say that they can because they believe those people. They believe the state. And there's a tendency for people to want to believe what the police have to say. Particularly when there's an accused person sitting next to me at a jury trial table or Mike Perillo. People think automatically, oh, they're guilty. They're sitting next to Mr. Perillo. Sorry. And that perception is very difficult to overcome. So I think until we get people out of the system, 
the system's always going to have some kind of problem. Thank you. I, I, I just, I feel like I just was a member of the jury watching Steve give his closing arguments in court. I just, <laughs> it's, it's funny because I feel the same way. I was actually on a murder trial, which took actually a month. And I was having flashbacks right there. Oh my God, here I am. Back on, back, back on the jury. Um, but I guess my question was, it's not like you see on TV and it's not the way you guys presented it here and it's not the way you read it in the paper. There's a lot of stand up, go outside, you see it get tense, jury stand up and go outside. We sat in a very small room with, I guess there's 12, 16 of us with alternates, I believe it was. Um, no windows for many, many, many hours. And they bring you back in, you hear very short testimony, and then all of a sudden something happens, step back out. And all those step back outs is what a lot of times we don't hear as a jury. So I guess my question ultimately is, I did not want to know, and I still don't know the background of the case that I was in, um, but have you guys gotten any perspective from previous jurors, whether it be the previous cases or this cases, on their feelings after hearing maybe what they were not presented with in the case? On, on Well, on like Gary's case, um, his older sister emailed me a few names and some phone numbers, but this was a, about 33 years ago, and so I can't find them. There's one lady on Facebook that I, I'm pretty sure was on the jury, and I have reached out to her, but uh, no, I, I haven't been able to, um, to uh, you know, chat with anybody, but I would love to, yeah. Right, I heard that, yeah. But she was forfeited by the judge, but the whole jury asked for more information, and the judge said, quit it. We're not friends. Yeah, if you read this whole, whole like, trial transcript, the judge was really rushing things along. I think Mara read it too, right? He wanted this trial to be over and done with, and he had something, yeah, he had like something else to do on Monday, so. Yeah, yeah. Right. No jury takes about three days, right, to actually find the jury, or four days sometimes on a big case. Yep. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yeah. It's a comment. I understand what the attorney said about people being people, but I think the point that I can't really grasp right now is, if I decide to go into the justice department as my career, I would think that I would have some interest in justice. Uh, but apparently that's not the case for some of these people. So I don't know. I don't get it. Really. Well, you know, uh, Erica Rogers, who is right back there, she was quoted in our last podcast as uh, you know, like basically saying that justice needs to be the goal of you know of of the prosecutors. But that unfortunately, there is so much um, attention and tension and stress play and importance placed on the numbers and your convictions and how quickly you can get the cases resolved, that that's not always the case. And she has the microphone right now, so we're about to hear from her. <laughs> Completely off topic. So why is there only six podcasts? Because I believe there's lots of answers that need to be addressed. Uh, one, have you contacted anybody from the jury? And two, did you get those uh, appeal opinions? I do have the appeals. The only um, opinion was from Judge 
Dugan on the latest, um, I'm trying to think of what it was. It was when Gary's lawyer was trying to present the William Dillon and the Wilton Dedge cases as new evidence in his case. It was sort of like the Hail Mary that I, I like talked about in episode six. It's kind of an unconventional way of looking at it. In other words, if John Preston lied in those two cases and the jailhouse informants and, and all that, we can assume it happened in this case as well. And Judge Dugan, uh, you know, uh, um, who I think is a great judge and a great guy, he, in his response, he basically said, well, the possibility exists that John Preston was wrong and, like, didn't lie. So he didn't grant the, um, the appeal. And all the other appeals that I've seen, they were just affirmed with no opinion on them. Well, the one in front of Dugan, how is that addressed specifically because I've been speaking to Jeff Golub, who's one of the smartest lawyers I know. Oh, yeah. And uh, we came up with this idea of it shocks the conscience that you not only have the same players in three cases, um, the same evidence almost. Has that ever been addressed? Has that been brought up? And I don't think so. Not like that. Not like that. No, it hasn't. So well, not until those six episodes aired. Yeah, we need seven and eight. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think we're open to it. And you know, yeah, thank you. Um, I think six was sort of, you know, I, 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 you know, I wanted twenty. I think Bob wanted fifteen. I think Mara wanted ten. So we just kind of, I mean, I'm just kidding. We, we had no. the information. We weren't really sure. And you know, it was it was our first attempt at you know at like doing something like this and we weren't really sure how much work it was going to entail and and the response that we were going to have so um yeah i mean i'm all for doing more and uh, actually we are going to talk about season two soon but it's but i love your ideas and i and i think i mean i i think especially like getting what you're talking about and if there's a possibility of that as a new appeal I mean that's certainly something we would love this is a story we want to stay on top of well, and it's somebody's life yeah. and I think you should stay on top of it because I know that he has counsel in New Jersey um, but if there was extra help because we all have to make a living we all have to feed our children and if there's extra help from the media, then I think that other private lawyers will get involved and try to help him. But as a lawyer, I'm looking at it, and there's some unanswered questions um, that really need to be addressed. So this should go on, and I hope yeah. it does. Well, and we are happy to do so. Right? Well, and and when we said season one. Um, there's nothing stopping us from updating you on season one as we do season two and hopefully three and four and five because there's a lot of stories like this for us to tell. So Find the jurors. That might be the key. I think we have time for about two or three more questions later. Right, we got about ten minutes. About ten minutes, okay. Mm-hmm. No, we got about... We don't have to leave at seven, but we can start. Yeah. 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 Anybody raise their hand over, over that way? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While Luann's making her way over to Tom, I would just like to tell everybody, because we haven't said this anywhere, that that theme music that you hear throughout the podcast, John wrote that too. As well as the script, he wrote the theme song too. So, And a shout out to Mike again for open mics. I love this place. I'm in a band called The Hemingways. 
and our our band plays here. You know, maybe like two or two or like three times a year. This is our favorite place to play. Such a cool vibe, great sound. He does a great job with the sound, and there's great bands here every Saturday. There's music on like Tuesdays. There's comedy. After us, there's a like comedy thing tonight. So you know, go figure, right? We we go from this to comedy. So. <laughs> Anyway, I think Tom has a, a question or a statement to make. If I may, uh, John, I was very active during this circa, if you will, uh, almost a decade. In the right? 80s? Yeah, yeah, right. Both, both players, all three players are now deceased, so I don't have to worry about running into them again. Uh, <laughs> the state's attorneys and the sheriff at that time hated each other. It was a political battle the whole time. Now, uh, are we talking about Jake Miller? Is that? Yes. As the sheriff? And, yes. Okay. And his command staff, who in fact recruited Preston, who in fact sold Dean Moxley on Preston. And they loved him. And if you opposed that, you were in trouble. Again, I know I'm really getting old. Judge Waddell, hard-nosed old buzzard, but an old, old jurist. And he chastised in writing, I think it might be in your file, John, the state's attorney for soliciting jailhouse confessions. Right. And the reason nobody, the, and the JDs, the, the, the attorneys can tell me if I'm wrong, the reason the prosecutors did not want to polygraph their jailhouse snitch well, then that brings into question the credibility immediately, more so than they were already fighting uh, because the guy was in jail. Sure. So those, all those things, I'm telling you, it was a in my, it was disturbing to me back then, and uh, these people need new trials. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know how to get it. I'm not, you know, but it, it's a shame. And and you may convict him again. I may testify against him, but you got to give me a and bring me in that way and uh, uh, you know that's where I'm going John but just to to kind of assess that circa it was crazy uh, back then in my opinion my humbled opinion to, to follow up on Mr. Davis and, uh, when we were investigating Mr. Dillon's case we had people confirmed people from the state attorney's office including Moxley would walk through the jail and they would call it walkthroughs and say, okay, who wants a deal? And that's how Roger Dell Chapman ever came up in Bill's case. He, it was a bunch of BS, and he said, sure, I'll do it. You work my sex case, I'll give you what you want. And that was by a couple of people that told us that. And yeah. I mean, he made a deal with the, with, with the guy that killed his brother, uh, his, you know, the co-worker's brother, I mean, well, for crying well, out loud. Well, that's the thing, right. Zachy had gotten uh, Michael Hunt's, Dickie Hunt's brother killed, and they worked with Zachy. They worked with Zachy more than one case in Brevard County. They worked with Zachy in other counties because he was vouched for here and vice versa. We have a letter from Dean Moxley to the prison officials saying, can you give Moxley, I mean, can you give Zachy, um, you know, a few favorable things because we plan on using him again. How do you know you're going to use him again? <laughs> you know what I mean? Karen, did you oh. want to share something real quick? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. 
I just no, want to personally thank you all for being here tonight, for Gary and for our family. And I want to thank John for working so hard to bring this case to light and the injustice that has come from it. And even if Gary never gets out of prison, which, you know, we all hope that he will. And if you've never been there, you really have no clue. Um, I hear people talk all the time about how it would, elderly people would be better off in prison than in a nursing home. And that really jerks my strings when I hear that because I'm a nurse. I've worked in nursing homes and I know the quality care that the elderly get in nursing homes. And I've been there for 43 years trying to make sure they did. But my brother gets nothing but heartache and torment. So again, I want to thank all of you for being here and listening and take this out there and pass it on as much as you can. And, and again, I, I thank John so much because he's been on this case for a long time. This didn't just happen this year. He's been following this for a long, long time. And he is the biggest hope that we've had in 33 years. So, you know, again, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And with that, I think we have to wrap it up. Um, so, in Sunday's paper, please buy a copy. Actually, buy two copies so we can break some records this week. All right. Uh, and my publisher will be happy about that. But uh, we have a really big um, you know, story on this case, um, even more in-depth than the podcast in some ways. Uh, we have a column in Monday's paper. We have a, another follow-up story. And then in Tuesday's paper, we've got Bob Gabordi's uh, excellent commentary on this and what should be done uh, in this case. And so this will all be online at floridatoday.com and, of course, in print. So please check it out. We thank you all for coming. We are going to be doing a season two. We are, we are following up on Gary's case. We're not going to drop this, Erica. If more podcasts need to be done, we will do it. If you and Jeff want to take this case, we will certainly write about it um, and, 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 you know, also do more interviews and et cetera. Uh, we are thinking of a few stories for season two. One of them under consideration is the, is the case of Brandy Hall, uh, which is uh, a like Palm Bay firefighter, a like Malabar firefighter who went missing, you know, 10 years ago. So, um, so uh, we really appreciate your support and you listening and, and you reading our stuff in Florida today. And thanks for coming out. Please buy another beer or two. And we thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I'm John H. Juarez reminding you that we are not done. More podcasts are on the way as our reporting yields new answers. You may have heard me announce that we are considering looking at the Brandy Hall case as our next topic, and that hasn't changed. It will just have to wait a bit as we try and leave no stone unturned in this one. Again, on behalf of the team, editor Mara Bellaby, producer Rob Landers, and myself, John A. Torres, we thank you for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.